0: Public CEO Report is a podcast that provides insights about the public sector and public policy for the benefit of decision makers and leaders powering our communities. I'm your host, Ryder Todd Smith, and today we're joined by Chris Scannell, partner at Nielsen-Merksemer, and Doug Johnson, president and founder of National Demographics Corporation. Chris and Doug, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Ryder. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us.
0: All right, so let's talk about CVRA and redistricting and the census. That's what this podcast is going to be all about. First, a little bit of background. Uh, Chris, tell us a little bit about your background, what you do, what your specialty is, and about Nielsen-Marxemer.
1: Yeah, um, by, by way of background, I kind of got interested in redistricting uh, as a, a student at Claremont McKenna College and uh, did a little bit of redistricting work while I was there. And then went to law school, and uh, you know, ended up working at the one firm in California that does redistricting work um, on the legal side. So I've been here ever since I got at, right out of, of law school. Uh, Nielsen Nierksimer is a uh, full-time political law firm, one of the leading political law firms in, in California. Um, you know, we do pretty much anything related to public policy. We have a lobby practice in Sacramento. You know, we represent um, companies and local governments uh, who have to deal with public policy issues in Sacramento. And, uh, you know, we do litigation, we do sort of a broad swath of general government political law work.
0: All right, and how many public agencies could you guesstimate that uh, you've worked with on districting or voting rights issues or things of that nature, just for some context?
1: We were trying to figure out, you know, it's somewhere in the ballpark of 200 plus. Uh, over the last decade, so more um, yeah, than one, we've been,
0: <laughs> more
1: than one, more than two. Uh, you know, we um, we've been doing a lot of this stuff for forty plus years. So, I mean, if you start going that far back, it's hundreds and hundreds. But just in the last ten years, it's probably about two hundred or so.
0: Okay. All right, and then Doug, let's uh, let's hear a little bit about your experience and focus area and what you do at National Demographics Corporation.
2: Sure. Similar to Chris I I got started in this as an undergrad at at Claremont McKenna actually the same professor that Chris had later on um, and the same Rose Institute state and local government where we all got our start. So got hooked on the issue graduated from college went off and did different things for a few years got an MBA and worked a couple jobs. And then when 2001 came around I actually came back and started working for our old professor. Um, at National Demographics. And what started as a part-time job while the tech boom collapsed in, in 2001. And 20 years later, I'm still here. So NDC uh, is a firm that works uh, for local governments, all kinds of local governments, similar to Nielsen you know, cities, schools, water districts, airport districts, fire protection districts. Um, we help all those with demographic studies, districting, and redistricting projects all over California and Arizona.
0: All right. And uh, I'll ask you the same question. How many cities have you had the opportunity to work with as a demographer dealing with either district formation or redistricting activity?
2: Uh, For cities, we're at about 140, um, maybe getting close to 150. And altogether, I actually went back and looked recently. Since I came back in 2001 to the company, we've worked with 368 jurisdictions on districting and redistricting projects. Look at that precision, Doug.
0: (laughs) Just what I want to hear from a demographer is precision. That's right.
1: (laughs) This is why lawyers go to law school so we don't have to do math.
0: So. Uh, One thing, too, we should just talk a little little bit real quick, the Rose Institute, because you both mentioned the Rose Institute. I should also note that, like both of you, I also attended Claremont McKenna College. There is a little bit of a CMC mafia going on here. Um, Like both of you, I was also involved with the Rose Institute of State and Local Government. Um, Chris happens to be on the board of the Rose Institute. Doug, you are a fellow at the Rose Institute. I am also on the board at the Rose Institute. So um, the Rose has a history of being involved with demographic work and— uh, districting and district formation processes and voter education information about the districting process uh, and redistricting activity particularly around the state redistricting commission um, so it's uh it's kind of a hive of that activity and that's probably one reason why the three of us have all come out of that space and have landed in this area many years later after our time at CMC so it's a great place to learn about in fact let's talk a second about that um, we're gonna we'll, we'll segue actually into the Rose Institute a little bit just because we're going to talk about uh, um, the conference that we all participated in back in September. Um, but it is, we just finished 2020, which had many characteristics to it, which includes theoretically a census that, uh, is delayed in getting its data out, but, um, should have been completed. And so, um, that triggers a bunch of activity. So, uh, maybe Chris, could you talk real quick? What, what does the census trigger, uh, in 2020 in terms of redistricting activity?
1: Yeah. So basically, any jurisdiction that elects its governing board member by districts in any or in any method other than at large um, has to redraw its lines every 10 years to make sure that their population balanced. Um, and then within that sort of constraint, they got to make sure they comply with federal voting rights laws. And um, then there are various state laws, depending on the type of, of jurisdiction you are, you know, talking about what other things you need to take into account. And so uh, every, you know, cities and counties and, and special districts and school districts, they all have different processes they have to follow, different timelines, they all have different uh, considerations, but the end goal is eventually to have all of their lines redrawn for their next election, um, generally for 2022, um, maybe in a couple cases 2023 if they're odd year, although there aren't very many of those left.
0: So that is generally going to prompt a flurry of activity for existing by district uh, local government agencies to have to redraw their lines uh, over the next 14 to 18 months.
1: Uh, well, less in most cases. Um, cities, most cities and counties are going to have to be done. Counties by the end of this year, okay. and cities mostly by next April, um, except for that select few that has again the 2023 elections. Um, so yeah, and and I should. There are even a few cities that currently don't are at large but have made the decision that they're going to draw districts now um, to transition into them for the t- next election also you know they've, they've been uh, threatened litigation or, or what have you and decided that you know they're going to abandon their at-large system but they've been waiting for the census uh, to draw lines because it didn't make sense to do it based on 10-year-old data
0: yeah, so and maybe um, Doug, if you could comment on that. So uh, there are, and we actually, generally speaking, there are a ton of agencies, and we'll talk, we'll come back to this in a second. There are a ton of agencies that have all gone to by district elections over the last 10 years since the last census, which is going to create a real crunch in 2021. Um, but uh, that a number of those agencies may have just gone to by district elections two years ago, three years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. Why? Uh, even though they only did it a couple of years ago, they are likely going to have to go through a redistricting process anyways. Could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure. The, for all of its problems, the, the decennial census, whether it's 2010 or 2020, is considered kind of the golden number. It's, it's the best survey out there of, of population counts. So that's what the law turns to when we're talking about equal numbers of people in each district. So even when a city or school district or whoever goes through this in 2017 or 2018, they're still using, for the most part, 2010 census data to figure out their total populations for each election area. So even though they just went through it, some jurisdictions just went through it in 2020, um, they still have to uh, redraw their lines to reflect the new census data. The good news is once they redraw the lines using the new data, those lines can be in place for 10 years. Mm-hmm. It's just the quirk of the, the first time they did the transition was late in the decade. And there, are, we always hear about different population estimates from the state or from the Census Bureau. Those are generally all large geography, often whole city numbers. They're not the small geography detailed numbers that we need to actually draw lines within a city. So the state can tell us how much a city has grown from year to year, but it doesn't tell us where in the city that growth happened. And if we don't know which part of the city had the growth, then we can't adjust the lines for it. Right. So it's all it's all about the, the decennial census data.
0: And when you engage to go into the redistricting process itself, there is kind of an early stage review or calculation using some of the data to make a determination about the need to redistrict. Is that correct?
2: Yes. The, As soon as the new data comes out, the first thing we'll do is a giant run for all of our clients of the new census numbers compared to their existing lines. And for a small, lucky few jurisdictions, their existing lines will still be population balanced. And if they want to adjust them, or we'll talk later about this new Fair Maps Act, if they need to adjust them to meet the Fair Maps Act, they can do that. But they do have that option of keeping the old lines. If they're one of those lucky few, but right. that historically that almost never happened in California because California was always growing. Given the fact that California hasn't grown in the last ten years, maybe we'll see more falling into that category. Okay,
0: and I think so. Now let's take a step back because uh, the other thing that's just generally happening is it's a crunchier um, and crunchier more so than ten years ago in two thousand eleven when there was a bunch of redistricting to be done or some redistricting to be done on the local government level. Um, the last 10 years has seen a sea change in the number of local government agencies that have moved to bi-district elections, and uh, their underlying root element of this, and I'll defer to our attorney on the call here, is fundamentally the California Voting Rights Act, or CBRA, and evolution of that law. Chris, could you talk a little bit about that and the impact it's had in terms of uh, the shift to by district elections in local government?
1: Yeah, um, so in 2002, the legislature passed the California Voting Rights Act. You know, we've had the Federal Voting Rights Act going back to the 1960s, and it was always a method for challenging at-large elections if certain um, criteria could be met. But it's a very um, labor-intensive way to do it. it, you know, requires very complicated litigation. And so the California legislature adopted its own version in 2002 that, you know, had the purpose or the goal of streamlining that effort. Um, making it easier for plaintiffs to challenge at-large voting. Um, And as a result, uh, you know, you've seen a a, a whole host of letters going out to cities, counties, uh, well, one county, uh, cities, school districts, um, saying, hey, if you don't voluntarily make the switch from at-large voting to districts, uh, we're going to sue you to to make you do it. And early on, there were a few cities uh, and county um, that resisted that and they were not successful. Um, and so the general trend now is for most cities and, and uh, other jurisdictions um, to make this the, the change voluntarily. But, you know, as a function of all of this, you I, well Doug, you're the one who's going kind to of be keeping count. But I think there were, I want to say maybe 100 local government uh, entities in, in 2010 that had to do this. And now I guess there's 500, you know, so uh, a fivefold fold increase, um, which means, you know, and, and I should say, you know, the, the demographers of the world, Doug and, and uh, law firms that do it, there hasn't been a fivefold increase in those, so um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's going to be a little bit of a, a hectic year, but, um, um, and then on top of that, you throw in the fact that now the legislature's adopted rules that require more hearings, um, more outreach, everything else, it's each single one is a more labor-intensive process
2: besides.
0: Yeah. yeah, so Doug, uh, could you talk a little bit yeah. about those changes in the numbers?
2: Yeah, I would add to that. Chris is right with the numbers. We're you know, up to around 500 jurisdictions in the state that say they have to do this. Um, the other twist is that um, a separate act by the legislature essentially got rid of off-year elections. So there, as Chris mentioned, there are a handful that still have odd-year elections. But in 2011, there were a lot. And so we actually had really two years to get done those 100 or so jurisdictions 10 years ago. Now, almost everyone has moved to even years. So we have you know, almost 500, or I think we might be a little over 500 now, jurisdictions that have to do this process. And now they all have to do it And what we had been hoping would be a, a year-long window, April to April but as we'll talk about the census data is late so those 500 jurisdictions are getting more and more jammed together unfortunately
0: well let's uh, well we should segue to that right now i mean i know we had it on some of our things we wanted to cover when we planned for this conversation but uh, we're sitting here this is early february that we're recording this right now for anybody who's watching um uh, what is the latest update on when census data is, when is it normally released and when does it appear to be like it's going to be on track and, and ultimately moving through the state processes, when do we think it's actually going to be available for a demographer
2: like yourself to use? <sighs> Welcome to my nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> so the data that we need for redistricting, which is the local localized uh, demographic data, is supposed to be released before April 1st. That's the That's the federal law. But with COVID and all the chaos that surrounded both COVID and D.C. politics in the last year, that was delayed. We had been hoping it would be delayed maybe six weeks and we'd get our data in mid-April or I'm sorry, Mm mid-May. And we just last week learned at the very end of January, the Census Bureau announced that they will release the data no sooner than July 31st. So we're at least four months late and you know, the wording is pretty clear. It's not going to come out July 31st. <laughs> it just won't come out any sooner than that. So that happened last Wednesday. Then on Thursday, the California Statewide Database, which has a second step in this process, announced that they are going to need 30 days to process that data. So their, their job under state law is to take the state prison populations that the Census Bureau just counts in the prison and to reallocate all those numbers back to their home addresses, so that the prisoners will be counted at their last known address, not in the prison itself. So we're looking at, you know, mid-August right. getting the data from the Census Bureau, and if the state sticks to that timeline, mid-September, actually getting the data that we're required to use to draw the lines, instead of March 31st.
1: <laughs> well, and then Thanks. and then compounding that. Under for, for cities and counties, at least um, the new uh, legislation that got passed last year, AB 1276, um, requires a three week delay between the release of those adjusted data, the prisoner adjusted data, and the first map being released by a, a district, jur- a, a jurisdiction that's doing districting. So, you know, you get your your initial census data in mid August. You know, you get your statewide database adjusted data in mid-September. And now you're looking at the first, second week of October before you can start releasing maps. And for counties, they got to be done by December 15th at the last, at the end, uh, the last date. So, you know, you maybe have two months to do this whole process, a bunch of hearings and everything, all the outreach and everything else. So, it's getting pretty, pretty uh, scrambled at this point.
2: Yeah, I'll add to that you know especially with the spread of independent commissions santa barbara county has their first ever independent commission they have to hold seven hearings after the draft maps are released <laughs> so if, you know if the data if the draft maps can't be released until you know, october and they have to finish december 15th that's a really tight time frame to get seven hearings done mm-hmm. So
0: you guys are not planning on sleeping once uh, September rolls around. You just plan on being awake throughout until Christmas? Is that the plan?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the problem, actually, it's not even us that has the issue. It's, you know, public agencies only meet at certain times, right? So if you could, if it were up to me and I could stack one meeting after another eight hours a day, that'd be great. But no, they all meet at, you know, six o'clock on Wednesday night. So, you know, you'll have 35 jurisdictions all doing a hearing at the same time. Sometimes in the same town, right? You might have a city, and then the county, and then uh, the local school district all having hearings. So it's it's going to be it's going to be frantic for us. I think it may be confusing for the public mm-hmm. um, as well as a result of that.
2: Yeah, and that is well, the downside. It's, the 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 part of this puzzle that is loses out the most when time gets squeezed is the time for public participation. Is the time for the public to go off and draw their maps. That that's in particular where we're hoping that the statewide database can reduce its 30 days down and do that faster, so that we can save some of that time for the public to actually be participating and talking in this process more than they'd be able to if we only had six weeks to to finish the whole thing.
1: Yeah, I don't know about you, Doug, but I don't think I've ever done a single redistricting in my entire life where someone didn't come in and complain that they didn't have enough time.
2: <laughs> right.
1: Right. It's it's just every, it, you could be doing it for an entire year. You'll get to the last couple of meetings, and someone will come in and say, "Hey, why are you rushing?" So, you know, yeah, it's it's just going to be compounded.
0: Yeah. So, uh, and of course, Chris, you refer to the fact that you also have a lobbying arm that operates out of Sacramento, and I know there's been some, I guess maybe hope is the starting point about maybe <laughs> legislative remedies that may. Reduce this compression, uh, and as, out of a good public policy, and kind of recognizing a stark reality of what's on the ground right now, probably very early to tell, given the le- start up of the legislative session right now. But I'll just throw it out there: is there anything to report or discuss on that?
1: Nothing concrete. I've, you know, there's rumors kind of circulating that something might be pursued, but I don't think there's anything concrete as of this point um,
2: that I'm aware of. Yeah, and the biggest challenge is, of course, for the state redistricting commission. Yeah, they have to draw assembly, state senate, congressional, and board of equalization lines for the whole state. Yep. And they're not going to get their data until mid-September. Their original deadline was August. The the court has already pushed that back, I believe, to December. But still, they've got to do all that state work in two and a half months, wow. with Thanksgiving in the middle of it. So. Yep. This is going to be brutal. And, and of course, the challenge is that, you know, these things are all written into statutes, and it would take emergency legislation to change a statute mid-year. So it, it, it puts everyone in a real spot, that's for sure.
0: Well, if Sacramento has gotten good at one thing in 2020, it was all sorts of emergency legislation and emergency <laughs> action. So may, maybe that'll be a silver lining that comes out of the uh, 2020 experience.
2: Yeah, that's exactly
0: all right. So you've just painted this grim picture, and there are now uh, clerks at school districts and special districts, uh, other special districts and cities that are going, great, the uh, sky is falling. This is a, this is chaos. Uh, what should those – I mean, th- those folks, often the city clerk is the leader or the the clerk of the organization is the leader at the agency on this kind of program and effort. What yeah. should they be doing right now? Like what's what's the professional advice you both have for them to be doing here in the month of February staring down this – uh, roadmap that's not going to make data available and map drawing available until September, for example?
1: I mean, well, I mean, I think there's a couple steps you can take. First, uh, you know, I'll toot, toot our horns, Doug. Hire your consultants now, mm. get them lined up um, so you're first on the list. Um, but it is. There are some preliminary steps that you can be taking before the data come out, right? Especially cities and counties, they have to conduct at least one and, you know, can do more public hearings before the maps get released, because, you know, you're, you're supposed to use that as an opportunity to help identify communities of interest and, and other, other things that should be taken into account in the process. They don't rely on having a map on the table, per se, although... I will say as a practical matter, sometimes having that map is helpful to guide those discussions, but it's not essential. And so, you know, those jurisdictions can buy themselves a little bit of time by getting those preliminary steps wrapped up before August um, when the data come out so that all they have to do at that point is um, start, they get the, the draft maps out as soon as possible, and then they just have the second half of the process to deal with, right? Instead of compressing it all into those two months. It's not an ideal solution, things will still be rushed, Um, but at least it takes a little bit of pressure off and it gives the public, I think, a little bit of uh, lead time to start processing the idea that this is going on. So they're not caught quite as flat footed. Again, they'll say it's also rushed, but you know it won't be as much
0: i'm yeah. not sure we would disagree with them that it's being rushed unfortunately right. the circumstances are forcing the rush on it but uh right. making yep. the best out of a speedy situation is really the best an agency can do right so front-loading mm-hmm. some of that stuff i would i would agree with that point as a communicator uh the more you can do to get some of that education seeded into the minds of your public and a very esoteric issue earlier the more likely they're going to be in a position of success to be responsive and engaged in the map drawing process when that ultimately manifests. Because if they start that process thinking about it that late into the game and you're rushing, like they're already playing catch up in a situation where they don't really have to be if you're proactive in some of these efforts. Doug, That's did you that. have some additional thoughts to offer?
2: Yeah, we're we're actually, we work a lot with the vendors of the various software packages. Obviously, we're, we do so many projects that uh, we generate a lot of business with them. So. As soon as the Census Bureau announcement came out, we reached out to them and started saying, hey, this is gonna be different than we thought. And we'd always said, let's wait for the official data to have people start drawing lines because you hate to draw lines and then you know, they turn out to be not balanced because the, the estimated data was different than the official data. But given that the data is gonna be so late, um, we're gonna change that approach and we're gonna work with um, getting as good of population estimates as we can And for most jurisdictions, I think we're going to have residents start drafting maps, you know, knowing that they're estimated numbers, knowing they don't need to get precise population equality because they won't be right in the end, but get people talking about how do you put neighborhoods together into your approximate districts, roughly how close your current lines, that kind of stuff we can get going. And then the other big issue we faced, just having been through this so many times with people drawing maps, is it's a lot of work to draw maps. And we didn't want someone to have to draw a map using estimated data and then tell them, oh, you have to redraw your map (laughs) once the official data comes out. So we actually are partnering with some of the map vendors to say, how do we automate that so that once the official data comes out, we just run a little program and all the maps the residents have drawn are automatically updated to the new population data. So we're already jumping on that. Trying to get ahead of it so that we can, as you were both saying, hold those preliminary hearings, get people involved, get people talking to their neighbors and their community groups about what makes sense for the city, long before the official census data is released. So, so, so we, we think it'll give a pretty robust process, even if it, even if it's a bigger communications challenge
0: yeah, right, to explain
2: but- the differences. So that that's um, that's interesting. I want to just
0: explore that a little bit more, too. So I think what I'm hearing you say is you would allow people to draw maps using some estimation data, effectively. And then uh, you would recede, replace that estimated data with real data, and the the per- people would not have to redraw their maps, but they might go back to their map and see that it's now out of balance because the assumptions were wrong, and then they can tweak some lines to try to get it back into balance as opposed to starting from scratch with redrawing a map. Is that an accurate
2: description? Exactly, we'll take okay. let them use those three weeks that Chris was talking about earlier um, to just fine tune their maps and make the final corrections rather than having to draw, redraw the map again from scratch. All
0: right. so, and one thing I want to drill in there too, because from a comms perspective, this is super important to me, but I know it is from uh, your demographic experience, and Chris, I think there's even uh, at least some legal benefits of empowering the public to do some of this work on their own, but you could comment on that, you're the attorney. Uh the idea here is, unlike a lot of other public policy issues, we try to tackle. You know, if you're building a huge um, capital improvement program, putting a massive piece of pipe in the ground, you can't really go through a simulation with your public on how to build that and minimize the amount of impact on the surrounding neighborhoods, right? That's just there's not tools necessarily do that. There's tools to explain it, but that would be cool. this, it would be cool. <laughs> it would be cool. And there are some interesting. Uh, well, that's a whole other conversation. There are some <laughs> interesting tools out there, uh, but. Uh, in this particular case, it's one of the few public policy areas, kind of like some of the budget allocation tools that exist out there, where you empower the public to say, great, you don't like our solution, please come up with the solution that you think works. Um, the map drawing tools are really a unique case where you can go to the public and say, I'm yes, I'm a demographic expert. We have a legal expert on here. We're trying to communicate with you and help you understand what's going on. But ultimately, we're going to empower you so that if you don't like these maps, you can come up with your own maps and submit them just like every other professional, right? the The map that that NDC draws is sitting right next to the map that's drawn by John Q Public and going through the scrutiny and review. Um, which is a very um, empowering thing for the public. It's a great way to engage with them because they actually get hands-on. Yeah. Uh, and frankly, I think losing that in the communications process is a real loss. So having a methodology to um, use estimating data is really helpful. Um, and then uh, ultimately, it's it's a great uh, kind of response when people say this, this whole process is rigged, you're not taking into my consideration when you're drawing maps. And the answer is absolutely, we're letting everybody draw a map, right? We're empowering you to do this. Please be a partner with us in this process
1: right i mean i I think there are three advantages well i'm sure there's more but there's three main ones one um, under the new state law you have to let people draw maps and submit them so first advantage you're complying with the law right that that's basic but even if they hadn't adopted those rules i think there, there are still two advantages right one it if you make someone sit down and actually draw a map they start to understand the trade-offs that go with this, right? If it's all in the abstract, a lot of people are complaining about, you know, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Without understanding what the ripple effects are throughout the rest of the map and how other problems it can create and that you have to make those trade-offs. So I think it's useful in that respect. And it's also, I think, useful, you know, historically, um, you, we would have public hearings and people would come in and they would talk about you know what they thought should be happening and what their communities of interest are but the 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 testimony and the commentary was so generic or vague that it wasn't really actionable in any particular way you know they 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 would just kind of talk in very general terms they wouldn't tell you you know what's your neighborhood where is it you know what what streets does that include now they can sit down. They can draw those lines and show you explicitly um, what they're talking about when they say you should keep this area together, or you know. And so it it makes it easier, even if it ends up being a map drawn by Doug. He has more input and understanding of of what the the community thinks that those those areas are that should be preserved um, than was necessarily the case before. And I, I should say we've had a few um, processes where the final map that got adopted was a public map. Mm -hmm. It happens.
2: Yeah. And let me add to that too. A fourth benefit, and this one's fairly personal for the city council members and school board members and other electeds is normally there's a proposal that comes to the elected board and the residents stand up and say, yes, I like it or no, I hate it. And most of them tend to stand up and say, no, I hate it. This is an unusual process in that, if they don't like it, they can fix it. <laughs> so that it's nothing beats being elected officials saying, okay, I hear you about what you don't like about this map. Fix it to the resident. And the residents often, you know, sitting right down and doing it. Um, so we've been in many meetings where you know the, the usual gadflies that are no, no, no on everything actually stand up and say, This is hard. You know, yeah. I tried to draw a map and I couldn't beat. X. so go with MapX. You know, and and I appreciate the tough part. So nothing beats being able to say to the the complaining resident, "Fix it yourself. You have the power now."
0: Well, and my observation and uh, uh, engagements that I've done with you, Doug, is I mean there is significant time taken in the community meetings to show people how to use the software, to answer their questions. There's technical support available to help those people work through the process and use the tools. I mean, it's not a, it is a simplified toolset. Uh, but it is not dead simple, right? Like it does take effort and some thoughts and some trickery to, to manage it all. But um, ultimately, it's usable. And, uh, and there is effort and support put into helping the public engage in this process. It's not just like you shove a, a URL across the, the, the uh, internet to them and say, you know, help yourself, good luck with that. And then you're, you know, peace out, right? I mean, it's a, it's a much more involved process to empower that public.
2: Yeah. And one of the nice things, is I mentioned, we partner with these software vendors a lot, and we've been working with them for years to try to make these tools better and better. And I, and I am happy to say the, the main tool we use the most, um, which generally is the best bang for the buck, is from a company called Caliper. And their product this year is actually greatly improved from just a year ago. Mm-hmm. It, it now has built-in help and little tips through it. So even folks that a year ago went through exactly what you're talking about. We used to start our training session saying this product is hard to use. Mm-hmm. You know, accept that, and move on. Um, okay. Now it's actually much easier to use. And uh, the big thing they did is that you now have a pull-down menu for English, Spanish, Vietnamese, or Mandarin. So it's it's now a multilingual tool for the first time ever. So so the tools are are still powerful and difficult, um, but they're getting better. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think one thing that will come up as part of this discussion, too, is there are populations who don't have direct access to a computer, um, and that may even be more exacerbated on COVID-19. I mean, theoretically, it is URL-based. They could go to a library and use a library computer if they need to, uh, to get internet access as well. Um, a part of that process, there are still paper maps. that are an option that can be done, mm-hmm. and obviously, there's calculations involved and some more manual work that it takes to get that done and less, less um experimenting, I think, with map drawing. So those are part of the process too that will be part of any rigorous process with the map drawing. In fact, I'm sure Chris, from a legal perspective, when it says you have to give them the chance to draw maps, the paper maps are part of that process if that's the only option that's available. Um, And those also are provided in with updated data and with uh, in different languages, I believe, Doug, for the appropriate languages in a given jurisdiction where that work is happening, correct?
2: Yeah, and this is a big challenge for folks is some jurisdictions, Not ones that we work with, but some jurisdictions just kind of print out a map and stick it out there and say draw on it kind of thing, which is better than nothing, but it's limited. Um, You know, we've been refining these tools for 35 years. You know, we we still flash around a LA Times story from the original Pomona districting back in the around 1990 or so, um, where we actually put out maps that are customized for this purpose to each jurisdiction. Because, you know, (laughs) I've seen maps put out to the residents where the units are supposed to use cross the freeway and things like that. It's like, well, most residents will want the lines to stop at the freeway. You have your tools have to enable that. So it is a challenge and they are tricky to put together. But we've had a ton of success with those, too, because you're right. Some people don't have Internet access or don't have good, fast Internet access. And we still get a lot of people that just don't want to bother with a computer. They just want to sketch out their their map, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know I still love it. We get these these sheets in where people have you know drawn their district, and here are the little numbers written on the side that they've added them up by hand to make sure they have the right populations in them. And uh, you know, power to them, and that works. Yeah.
0: Um, all right, so uh, we're talking about all this, and it is 2021. Uh, we just survived 2020. We are still in the middle of a pandemic. Still, uh, council meetings and board of supervisors meetings and school district meetings are being run on Zoom and in virtual environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, COVID-19, is, we expect or anticipate, it's likely to have an impact on this process. I think it's a little vague, as particularly as we're talking here and this timeline is getting further pushed into September, October, November. I'm mm-hmm. not certainly going to sit here and predict where we're going to be at that point. Um, mm-hmm. Right now, Chris, my understanding is that legally, under Gavin's, Gavin, Governor Newsom's orders, uh, theoretically, you could be executing these meetings in a virtual format or over Zoom. Yeah. Um, we don't know if that executive order is going to remain in place in time, but like, can we talk a little bit about how COVID-19 may be affecting the community engagement process here?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's going to be a challenge for sure. I, I think I mean, I would be shocked if that emergency order is repealed before the end of the year. Right. I think that virtual meetings are gonna be an option and probably a widely used option for a, a while. Uh, emergencies don't get repealed for a long time as a rule. Um, but you know, I, I will say that the possible silver lining of the delay of the census, and, and uh, say all else being equal, I would just assume it not happened because it's yeah, gonna be a pass. Not. But if you're looking for the silver lining, um, it's that we're gonna be doing all of this in probably the fall of this year. By that time, you'll probably still have all of those virtual meetings, um, but you might still at least have an option for people to show up in person. You know, you may have uh, city council chambers open. Maybe it's, you know, 25% capacity. Maybe it's full capacity. Who knows? But but I think the further we get through the year, the more likely it seems to be that at least there will be some possibility of having people participate live if they want to, mm-hmm. um, while still preserving the opportunity. I think for a lot of people, the virtual option is actually kind of nice mm. you know they can do it from their couch at home and just jump on when it's time and not have to devote a whole night to it so and the other kind of related to that the the fact that the new law requires the hearings to be conducted at a specific time you know agendized and conducted at a time that's announced in advance instead of kind of when we get to it on the agenda depending on what happens in the hours that lead up to it you know i think that's going to help too
2: yeah, yeah. And I, I do want to emphasize that, which is one of the surprises that's come out of all, doing all these hearings in the COVID era, um, is people actually find it useful. And the, and the interesting twist is, yes, there are people that would, can't wait to get back to in person. But those are the folks that show up for every meeting. You know, we've actually tapped into a new population that previously you know, didn't have childcare or you or know, they couldn't bring their kids and have the kids run around. You know the council chambers, but now by Zoom, you know their kid can be eating dinner across the table from them, and they can participate fully in the meeting, um, without having to get a babysitter, without having to worry about what their kid's doing or getting their kid to bed. So it has opened up a door for a lot of people that hopefully will keep open. It does present a huge uh, log- logistical challenge for jurisdictions to be able to have Zoom participation while also having a live meeting and. Yes, you know, those requests are coming. And so yeah. hopefully the jurisdictions are anticipating it. But I know a lot of them are uh, are not. So that yeah, that's a challenge.
0: We have a we work and provide the video production services for a couple of council meetings where they are in this hybrid environment uh, City of Fullerton is an example of one of those and it's you know it's a engineering marvel at times it seems to actually make those things work and work successfully yeah. it's it's always much easier if everybody just stays on Zoom and uses a singular platform right. Zoom has some great tools for multi language support and and uh, obviously sharing and I would generally observe to your point Doug that We've seen a big increase in overall community engagement or at least lurkers out there that are watching more or kind of tuning in because it's a lot easier. Um, And cities have also been practicing this format, right? They've been practicing getting on Zoom calls and working with each other. So uh, building that kind of bone and um, muscle uh, strength around those virtual meetings has really, I think, helped public agency organizations generally look at how we might engage the public in a different way. That's gotten more exposure. And in my mind, you know, if I, if if I could have my dream scenario, it's we do some online stuff, we do some in-person stuff, we try to accommodate various people in this scenario, um, because you are probably gonna get different constituencies based upon doing in-person versus live versus hybrid. Uh, and if the goal is to you know hear from everybody, that might be some of the best options to do. Not to mention the fact that you know generally speaking, it's just a lot cheaper to do the the virtual stuff, right? It's very easy. The travel costs are significantly reduced, and um, it's logistically easy for everybody else that's participating in the process too.
2: So yeah. Yeah, with our Santa Barbara County project, they had actually planned to just go around to the different city council chambers, because they're all wired for broadcasting all that. And now we're looking at, we actually are going to need two big screens, one big screen that will show the maps, and the other screen that will show the people who are commenting via Zoom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is going to be a, most of those small town chambers won't be big enough for that, so we're going to revisit where they're going to hold those hearings. It, it will. It, it exactly.
0: I mean, that's um, and what you're actually turning around and then streaming out to the rest of the world becomes an interesting question in yep. terms of how are you getting the broadcast from within the chamber versus the person that's coming in on Zoom. And I mean, I, you know, like I said, my, we got some super hardcore AV nerds on our team that have worked on some of these things, but it's, it's a, big yep. a big challenge. Definitely a big challenge. Um, all right. How do uh, a couple more questions, and we'll wrap up here. How do, how does staff? I mean, this is a dynamic environment. For example, Doug, you shared the news that the census data is going to be delayed, and what this kind of cascading effect is on timeline. How how does staff stay? You know, if you're the city clerk of a small school district in the Central Valley, or or a special, you know, a, a cemetery district up in the Bay Area, like how do you keep track of what's going on with this space?
2: Chris, do you want to take that first? Take no, the slide? No, okay. Oh, okay. Um, well to be honest writer i'm i'm gonna steal an idea from you (laughs) we actually are just starting up we haven't sent out any issues yet but we're just starting up our own email and newsletter uh list for our clients and and those who are interested in this topic where we'll be sending out updates um this is uh, again part of the reaction to the the latest delay in the census date is what can you do but i think you know signing up for you know like our ndc information to get the demographer side of this. You know, staying in touch with Trepepe-Smith, you know, on the communication side of this and the engagement side of this, there are, as Chris mentioned at the very beginning, there are very, very few folks that do this work, you know, on the legal side, on the demographic side, or even on the communication side. And so, you know, we'll all be spending an enormous amount of our time figuring out how to manage all this and how to make the best of the situation we're in. And then updating all of our clients on that. So I think reaching out to folks now. Um, and you know, even if, if someone's not ready to sign a contract, you know, they can tell us that they're interested and in get on our list. We're happy to get those communications going. Yeah.
0: Chris, you got any this, other comments? This will be very dynamic. Yeah. Chris, you got any other comments you want to make on that? Otherwise, I got a couple of things I'll throw out there too.
1: Yeah, no, go ahead. I, I think Doug's right. I think now is the time to really be reaching out to the people who do this and, and getting information from them. You know, I I've done I don't know six or eight uh, various presentations and in, in various forums for city clerks and you know county councils, and you name it. and there there's a lot of information out there if you're if you're looking for it. And I think um, you know the the people who who do this work um, are available to talk and and happy to share information. so
0: yeah, well, obviously, something like this format here helps provide at least some update and a roadmap, although this will be. This is being recorded in early February, therefore, by the end of February, we'll you know right. some of the news is going to change on us, right? Yeah, that's um, right. Second thing I would generally observe is, you know, local government, if if, if one if there's one thing about California local government, there's an association for everything, right? So there is a California City Clerks Association. There's a city clerk working group that's partnered up with the league, which I suspect is affiliated with the City Clerk Association. There's, uh, I'm sure, county clerks or some division within CSAC and within the Special District Association as well. So for all those kind of major big three that represent local government, uh, the local government agencies, um, mm-hmm. All of them are probably organizing groups and having conversations. I know, uh, Doug, one of your team members and I were recently on the League of Cities City Clerk uh, monthly call having a discussion. We brought up a number of these points and issues just to advise them of it. So certainly they should be looking at their association groups and getting involved with those to stay up to date. Email lists, very helpful. Um, I would also just say, especially for the clerks that are maybe newer to this or this is all like everything they're hearing today is new. Um, The Rose Institute of State and Local Government hosted a virtual conference, a one-day virtual conference in September that covered a lot of territory and got in some real meaty issues, had some great speakers, uh, including both Doug and and Chris as speakers, um, and uh, really had a lot of great content. And that is available for folks, I believe it's at this point, it's still a de minimis fee of like 50 bucks for you know, six hours of solid content that would be really great for anybody who wants to do a ramp-up course. They can go in and watch all the recorded Zoom sessions and get up to speed very quickly on these issues and best position themselves, I think, to find the right demographer, find the right outreach firm, find the right legal counsel, make some decisions, advise their uh, senior management staff and counsel properly to advance the ball on these issues. So I would definitely encourage people to—in to, um, fact, we'll put a link in the YouTube uh, section on this video when we post it, linking out to that Rose Institute URL. Uh, or I'll have my um, editor insert a URL on the screen here that will just pop up through the magic of post-production editing. Uh, <laughs> he'll He'll give you a chance to see that to see that linkage and be able to follow that URL. Um, all right. and then last but not least, I just want to cover one other item, which is we talked a lot about city clerks and city staff and their involvement. Where do elected officials fit into all this, right? what what's their role in this process?
1: Well, I mean, at the end of the day, well, by default at least, they are they're the decision makers. You know, the staff and, and the consultants and, and our office and, and yours, we're all make working to, to make sure that we're developing options that ultimately are providing choices to the, the elected officials. Right? I mean the, there's an exception if you would decide to adopt an independent commission, you know, and that that's a different case. But but by default um, the maps that get adopted are adopted as an ordinance or a resolution. And so It's up to the city council or the board of supervisors to listen to all of this commentary and then listen to the advice they're getting from their consultants and decide, you know, I've got 15 maps in front of me. Which one makes the most sense? You know, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm told that that all of them sort of meet the criteria that that they're required to meet. Um, Now I've got to think, what do I know about this jurisdiction and and this town, um, you know, based on what I know? Which one of these is the the most uh, sort of effective for providing representation to the the citizens of my my city or my county?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I would add to that too. The the really successful members of the community who get their maps adopted are the ones who understand this is a back and forth process, and you know listen the elected officials will give initial feedback on the maps, maybe narrow the pool of maps down and the really successful residents and organizations, are the ones that listen to that, and then take that narrow group of maps and submit another round. You know, I always remember when we first did Modesto, a 20-year-old community college kid was just interested, and so he submitted a map, and then the commission held a hearing on it, and he revised it based on that hearing, and then the commission held a near- another hearing and mentioned more thoughts on the map, and he kept responding to the public input and the elected officials' input, or in that case, the commissioner's input, and his map made it to the final two. You know, it was it's that kind of give and take that happens through this process, perhaps more than any other process, and is an opportunity. But it is ultimately, as Chris said, the successful folks at getting their maps adopted are the ones that realize the elected officials are the ones who have the final vote on this and are ultimately responsible for it.
0: Yeah. Uh, and then, would you, I guess, on a related point, uh, in terms of elected official involvement and in some of the, I mean, clearly they have to sit at the dais for the hearings, but uh, some of the public outreach meetings that are not hearings, but just more about community education, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my general sense is it's best if they just kind of take a back seat. Let the, com- let the community be involved and engaged in this process. Uh, don't try to show up or dominate at those meetings or start rendering perspectives on issues and whatnot, but just hold back and let the community do their part. Uh, and, uh, you know, operate from your position of taking this fresh in, sharing information with the rest of your council members at the dais in your function as a council member or board of supervisors member or, you know, water board member or what have you.
2: That's, you. It's, yeah, it's very true. It's very distracting for the, for the public at these forums to have elected officials. Often we'll have them thank everyone for coming, you know, kick off the hearing and then leave. But otherwise, people, instead of the give and take we're looking for in the meeting amongst different community groups, they end up turning all their attention to the council members present and lobbying that person, essentially. We've also seen elected officials get themselves in trouble. Uh, We worked in one city where a council member refused our guidance and insisted on giving a big speech at the beginning because he thought he had seen where the process was gonna go and he tried to shape the discussion to the map he wanted. Well, he miscalculated. And once people drew maps the way he wanted, he realized that put him in with another council member, and he wasn't going to get to run for reelection. So he had to show up at the forum three weeks later and renounce all of his own statements early on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if they can get themselves in trouble, and they're much better off, you know, letting the public weigh in first, and then you know being the elected officials who are also making the decision, not trying to frame it from the beginning. Yeah. I think um, related to that point, I
0: mean, this kind of talk speaks to that independent redistricting commission. So a couple things I'll sum up here. It's not uh, – unless your charter requires it, which is possible, uh, you're generally are not required to do an independent commission. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do an independent commission that is actually fully empowered to make a decision on the maps and completely takes it out of the hands of the council. Or you can have them do some hybrid model, correct, Chris, where they can lead a process and go through it and be – uh, population are kind of jo- John Q public representative, but ultimately those things ascend to the council for them to make the final decision on adopted maps. Are those accurate descriptions of some of the options that are out there for independent commissions, Chris?
1: Yeah, there's basically three. There's the pure independent commission that you described. There's sort of a purely advisory commission. So they they have hearings or whatever, and they may make recommendations to the council, but they're not binding, and they're, they're just recommendations. And then the hybrid that you talked about is sort of, well, it's a hybrid of the two. It's it it's independent to the extent that it gets to make proposals to the commission or to the, to the council, but the council can only choose among the maps that are proposed to Mm -hmm. the, by the, by the commission. So unless there's some legal requirement to make tweaks to it. So, you know, the, the, in that case, the hybrid commission can sort of funnel the process and say, you know, yeah, you get to pick, but you have to pick between these two or these three, um, so there's some independence there some control um you know there's this sort of it's a, a spectrum right you know complete control by the council
2: all the way to none and and we have had i've had a couple of jurisdictions that have looked at the language for advisory committee committees and said well you know they can only cover one of the required four hearings so does that really help us very much and that is how the law reads but it's not actually how it works um because The council does have to hold three hearings if you have an advisory committee. The advisory committee can hold one of the required four and then, of course, do a bunch more. But two of those required three can be on first reading and second reading of the ordinance. So it, it, and the third would then be when the advisory committee reports to the council and the council takes action on the advisory committee's report. So it, it, they do knock out a lot of, you know, the, the advisory committee can handle all the community forums, can do all the informational meetings and take care of all that. And then the council would just handle the the parts that the course has to handle, which is the final vote. People are getting a little intimidated by the fact that the language says the advisory committee can only do one of the required four, but the other three are kind of formalities anyways.
0: And I think one of the other questions that comes up in considering this, and, and by the way, my sense is based upon, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this, the vast majority of local government agencies do not go independent, Commission at all. They just they'll they'll run it through their existing board or their existing city council or something like that. Um, the, some of the questions that will loom around this are, if I go the independent, like is is that more cost effective? Is it more expensive? What does it take? My general sense of things here is it depends. Right? It depends mostly on, usually if you're going to go independent commission route, you're going to have more outreach, more meetings, more time spent staffing those commissioners. They're going to have to go through a ramping curve and process to learn about the nature of the work that they're doing. And then, right. especially if it's a hybrid, you're ultimately going to have to brief the council on that stuff as well. So there's additional meetings that are likely to come. So Typically, you would see a correlation between overall costs of services, whether it's additional internal staff costs or consultant costs. The more you go with an independent commissioner, you have an independent commission function, um, which isn't to say it's the wrong thing to do. It's just there are certain overhead things that are inherent to any sort of independent commission process that are likely to add additional
2: cost to the process itself. I guess yeah, we're... yeah, oh. and just so people understand what we're talking about, when we worked with the Pasadena Unified Independent Commission, the commissioners chose to hold twenty-three meetings. You know, mm-hmm. that's a lot of work. That's, <laughs> so yes. that, that's an extreme, but that is where commissions tend to go is to m- more hearings than a council would do if the council members had to do it because the commissioners only have one item on their agenda. You know, the council's yep. that's right. there's, there's some other stuff going on impacting cities and schools these days.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, Chris and Doug, this has been immensely helpful. Is there anything else that we didn't get a chance to cover today uh, that you want to at least raise a point about or or surface some conversation on?
2: Good, I will I will add one note, just so, you know, we've talked about Claremont and the Rose Institute and how a lot of us in redistricting, is, including all three of us, come out of there. It's worth noting as we talk about possible need for legislative changes that actually now the chief counsel for the Assembly Elections Committee and the State Senate Elections Committee on the majority side are both now Claremont McKenna alums as well. So... Uh, Hopefully, we can get some fixes to some of these things within the, within the Claremont family. Should make it easier to move those things along. Go CMC, that's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, that
0: actually does, but that actually just reminded me of one other point that I wanted to raise, Doug, because uh, Chris and you've both noted that this is going of be a crunch year, and obviously the timeline slide is going to be a crunch as well. Um, what does that mean for how like? Doug, you're getting ready for this. And Chris, I don't know. I mean, I assume you're not adding more partners to Nielsen merksimer but maybe there's yeah. some crunch work you're looking at addressing. But, Doug, let's talk about for you first where, how are you getting ready to be able to deal with this deluge so people are not going to be left holding the bag if they're, you know, if NDC's wrapped up doing 400 of these uh, redistrictings in 2021?
2: Sure. It's one of the reasons we've been around so long Is is decades ago, the founders of the company figured out this model where we realize we have a busy year of the decade, not a busy time of year. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in, in 81, 91, 2001, 2011, every decade we've had to do this expansion where we bring in and train new people. And this year, essentially, we're just repeating what we've done before just on a larger scale. <laughs> Instead of trying to cover 105, now we're looking to cover, you know, a couple hundred jurisdictions. And so we, we bring in professors Uh, you know, retired city clerks, retired uh, school superintendents, people who are comfortable in front of an elected body and comfortable talking to the public from that perspective. And then we put them through a big training course. Um, So it's something we've done again and again. It is very tricky and hard to do. Um, we We had to learn that it was easier to take people who were comfortable in that audience and train them on redistricting than to Take demographers and try to make them comfortable speaking in front of elected <laughs> bodies. You know that doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> you know, so it's something we've had to do before. We're just having to scale it up even more this time than before.
0: All right. Yeah, I was going to say. So you've grown your army of people around in D.C. pretty significantly over the last year, getting ready and anticipating 2021 being a busy year.
2: Yes. Yes. We had four a year ago. We had four people. Now we're up to 12, and and still growing. Okay.
0: All right. And Chris, any any uh, adjustments you're making at Nielsen-Merksemer, or is the nature of the engagement work you have pretty straightforward makes it easy to absorb?
1: You no, know, I mean, I, we're not adding people. I think it's more uh, a function of um, this practice area is going to be a bigger part of their mix, right? So in a normal, you know, 2016, 2017, I might do a jurisdiction or two or three, you know, and it's part of my broader legal practice. 2021, it's Going to be you know 95%, right? Yeah. And that's true for a number of the, particularly the litigators in our office, um, where we all have some experience with it. But this year it's going to be a big, big chunk of what we do. So.
0: All right. Well, it's going to be a busy year in 2021. I thank our audience for listening. Uh, that's today's report. My thanks to Doug and Chris for joining us today, and from the whole Public CEO uh, team and myself, writer Todd Smith. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Ryder. We hope you learned something new and inspiring that'll help you in your public service. Remember, Public CEO has a daily newsletter that is free to those who sign up at publicceo.com. If you have feedback, questions, or guest suggestions for Public CEO Report, please email alex at publicceo.com.